if you apply my logic, 100% of the funding comes from the trust, 100% of the upside should go to the trust. Just bear in mind that that will also give rise to, even though you might be CGT exempt at the house owner level, if that payment is made, it may have CGT consequences for the trust. There will be trade-offs between asset protection and capital gains tax on that primary residence if that loan is invoked to recoup that equity upside. So there's no free lunch in any of this stuff. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 398 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Last week, we already touched on asset protection trusts, aka equity strips, as the fifth layer of asset protection. So you have contractual insurance, you have the corporate veil, you have silos to protect you, then you have the option of moving assets away from you into other names, and then the fifth layer is an asset protection trust or an equity strip. Today, let's drill deeper into this fifth layer, asset protection trust, aka equity strips. An asset protection trust is a trust that holds a charge over your assets, be it a mortgage over your properties and slash or a PPSR registered interest over your other assets. PPSR stands for Personal Property Securities Register. P as in personal, P as in property, S as in securities and register. As, uh, and then R as register, so PPSR. A common charge in the PPSR is an ORPAP, another acronym, a charge over all present and after acquired property. If you really look at this acronym, it actually already tells you everything you need to know. So it's an all as in all, and then present, P as in present, and then after acquired, so double A, and then property. And so an OPEP charge covers all your property, all your entity's property, whoever you're talking about, and not just what they currently own, but also anything they acquire after this date. That's why it's called an all-present and after-acquired property. So if your asset protection trust holds a charge over your assets, be it a mortgage or an OPEP in the PPSR, then it is much harder for your creditors to attack those assets. The OPEP or mortgage protects your assets. So how this exactly works and what to look out for, this is what Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide will discuss with you in this episode. If we look at one example, let's say you sold a property and you put the cash in the trust, and then the trust lent you money to buy a new property and it took the mortgage at the time that it lent that money. I think that would be, and it was all documented properly, I think that would be extremely difficult to say it was a sham. Yes, I agree, especially if it's a new property. Yeah. The other extreme, extreme the other end of the spectrum would be I've kept the current property, I do a deed of gift, I satisfy the deed of gift by way of a promissory note, the promissory note's endorsed back to me and, and it was all documented correctly. I think that there would be instances where the courts would respect that and there'd be instances where the court wouldn't respect that. And, I would, and it would really come down to whether or not from a public policy, the court thought that you were being a naughty boy. So that's not really good legal advice, but I think it's, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the practicality of it that, you know, if everything's documented correctly and you have 
a legal basis for each of the steps, then you've got a wall to jump over, but it's certainly conceivable that the court will jump over it and say, no, we don't, we're not going to respect that. The other thing you need to think about is that moving the value in this way is still a transaction that could be reviewed under the bankruptcy provisions. So even if the courts say it's not a sham, that it's actually a valid legal transaction, that you actually have moved equity from your personal name to your trust, that's not to stop the court saying six years later under the, you did this to defeat creditors, that they can unwind that transaction. Hmm. So that's good to sort of keep in mind that yes, is the transaction effective? That's the first question. And then secondly, even if it is effective, is it something that can be reviewed under the bankruptcy provisions that apply to effective transactions? So if you were going to do an equity strip, you would want to be doing it once again, well before any activity that was likely to give rise to the liability that we're ultimately concerned with. And you'd want to be making sure that it was done by the book. And I know I asked you this before, when you say activity, you don't mean just the activity for this specific client that then ended in a in a court case. Mm. You mean the general professional... Risky activity. Whatever. Yeah. Not just risky activity, basically running your business. Yes, that would be the most prudent and cautious mm. approach to take. So that means basically that if you have already run your business for a couple of years and you do have assets in your name, then there's basically no way out anymore that gives you 100% protection. Yes, you have the structural insurance through the company, you have the contractual insurance through the professional indemnity. Maybe you have the asset in another name, but probably not in our example, you don't. And then you set up what I call an asset protection trust and you call a gift and secure loan back or an equity strip. If you do that, since you don't actually buy a new asset and you then do it 100% by the book, you engage a lawyer, etc. even then it doesn't give you 100% protection. It might still get clawed back. Yeah, that's correct. And then people say to me, should I do it? And I tend to think about these things in a similar way to when people ask me, should they enter into a binding financial agreement for a family law perspective? You know, People always focus on the cases where things don't work. And I use the analogy to got an awful disease that's going to kill you. And if you take this pill, 99% of the cases, it cures you. 1% it doesn't. It doesn't cure you and you just die like you would have died anyway. To not take the pill because in 1% of the cases it won't work is silly. No one, people would always take the pill, right? If I then said to you, you've got this awful disease and you can take this pill and it, it works in 30% of the cases, but once again, really no side effects other than the cost of the pill. Do you still take the pill? I think most people still take the pill. It's it's only if you said, if you take this pill, you're breaking the law and you're going to go to jail so that it becomes a, an asymmetric <laughs> or it becomes a symmetric risk in the sense that there's upside and downside that you wouldn't take the pill. And so I think in asset protection, subject to not breaking the law, it's still a sensible thing to do as long as the price you're paying for it is not horrendous. And unfortunately, there are unscrupulous people in the market, both in accounting and law, that promise miracles and charge accordingly that, and they're not actually providing a miracle. They're providing a very high cost strategy that only works, you know, 20, 30% of the time. So I think if the cost is, is proportionate to the protection that you're potentially getting, then to leave yourself completely exposed versus taking the pill and maybe if you do it soon enough, getting a 90% protection or doing it later and getting a 30% protection. I would still be taking the pill 
And that's how I think about asset protection. That's how I think about, like, I've had so many people say to me, why would I enter into a binding financial agreement? Because I've heard all these cases challenge them and they don't stand up in court. And I'm like, well, how many cases do you actually know of versus how many of these things are actually registered or, you know, put in place? It's like, it's infinitesimally small. Most of them hold up. So anyway. No, no, I, I 100% agree with you. And also the more layers of protection you have, you know, like if you're going out into the rain, if you just have one layer to protect you, then you probably get wet. But if yeah. you have three or four layers, you know, you have an umbrella, you have a raincoat, you have something else, etc. The more layers you have, even if one layer is not 100%, the more you have, you probably edge closer and closer to reasonable protection. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've also got to take a practical, you know, life is, life looks a lot different in reality than it does in the office of your accountant or your lawyer. So life's messy, you know, so we, we sort of think we've got a really clean solution and then it turns out that it's messy or we think we've got a messy solution and it turns out to be really practically effective, you know, and that's really part of our job as professionals to guide people and say, you know, this, you're going to look really silly standing in a court box trying to defend this crazy idea versus hey, look, you know, this might not look like it's 100% effective, but I can tell you from a practical perspective, you know, when the bankruptcy trustee rolls in and you've had a mortgage on this property for the last 15 years, it's going to be taken reasonably seriously. So understanding what these things look like when people start to fire cannons at you is, is really useful to get a perspective on what you should and shouldn't do. And how often do you actually see these equity strips? So we, we do do them and have done them, but very judiciously. So the short answer is not very often for us. We'll only do them for clients who want it done properly and, and are in circumstances that it makes sense. We have seen other, obviously, market participants to you know market these sort of things more aggressively and that it's, it's um, done poorly. And I, I think that the clients don't actually understand what they're, what they're getting into. You know, that people have real, when, they, when they're sitting in front of you, they have real, real concerns. And it's not, it's not about dodging tax or anything like that. It's that they want to be able to go to work and you know, perform surgery on people's brains without worrying about whether or not they're going to go home and lose their house. I personally have a lot of sympathy for that. So yes, they they definitely are in the, available to be done and there's people who can do them properly. Yeah, it's not it's not sort of like going and you know buying a sandwich. It's I think it's it's a quite a, it's quite sophisticated if you want to do it right. But you mentioned cash before. I understand cash doesn't have to flow, but if cash does flow, it makes it more secure. Well, I think the benefit of cash is that for whatever reason, people like to see things go through banks because it gives it a real air if you can pull out bank statements and you know, whether or not that actually means anything or not. Obviously, it's good for banks. But yeah, I think I think cash shows that there was there was real value available and the real value was was moved. And where we work with people as well from an asset protection strategy is not just a one-off, let's do an equity strip, but actually a strategy over time where we say, you know, if you put your profits into a trust and then that trust lends you money and then you use that money to pay down your mortgage, then that's a great strategy over five or 10 years to end up with a property that's funded by your trust with a mortgage in place of a property that was funded by a bank with a mortgage. And that's, you know, that's I think, reasonably ironclad. So there's ways to think about asset protection over time and use real cash as it flows around and meets real expenditures, whether it's paying for your kids' school fees or, you know, uni fees or an extension on your house or whatever it might be, rather than just spending the money, think about, okay, where do I want this value to go and where do I want this value to come from? And would one way be better than the other from an asset protection strategy over time? They're the sort of, that, that's when you start to get a bit more of an ironclad 
asset protection strategy because you're thinking about value, where it's flowing and where it's coming from. And that's where cash is really helpful because you can, you can see it move and you can see that there was actual value there that you could deal with. When you're sort of trying to move value that's stuck in an asset in an unrealized way through a promissory note or a gift or something like that, deed of gift, then that automatically looks a little bit more artificial than, than perhaps cash. But I personally think from a legal perspective, there's no difference at all. But Quick question. If the uh, trust loans has a mortgage on the house, and then, of course, to make it legally valid, there needs to be interest paid. So the trust would have interest income, which is taxable. The uh, owners of the house wouldn't be able to tax deduct this interest because it's their main residence, correct? That's correct. So the way we would generally do that is we would use what I would refer to as an equity loan, which is basically a loan that doesn't have interest on it, but the lender gets to participate in some of the upside associated with the capital gain on the property, for example, or something commercial like that. Similar to, I, know, I think Bendigo and Adelaide Bank once had a product, they may even still have a product that does that for people who can't afford the interest sort of thing, like a reverse mortgage for older people and that sort of stuff. So the key thing about whatever loan you put in place with a related party, you need to follow its terms. So if you have a loan that says interest is payable and you don't pay interest, the chances of it being seen as a sham by a court skyrocket. Because you've got a document there that says one thing and you're doing another thing. That's the, that's the definition of a sham. So having an interest-free loan, that's fine. Um, having an interest-free loan that then has you know, some sort of a equity or capital appreciation participation, I think is even better because it also provides a little bit more protection from some of the capital gain from potential claims. So once again, I think when you get into the weeds on these things, you can see how it's all in the detail. Uh, it's all about thinking through these issues. You certainly should not put yourself in the position that you're paying non-deductible interest at a personal level and recognizing deductible interest, you know, accessible interest. Accessible income, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that would mm. not be a good, good structure. Now, before we cover quite a few more questions about asset protection trusts, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. You already touched on something I wanted to ask you next. The first question is, let's say the house is worth 10 million and it's jointly owned by both spouses, would you make the loan 5 million or would you make the loan 10 million? If it's not held as tenants in common, but as joint tenants, then I assume you make it 10 million yes. because the creditor of one spouse could always go for the full house, correct? Sort of right. I'd make it 10 anyway, but question comes down from a property law perspective. If one spouse is bankrupted, then the bankruptcy trustee would generally not get the whole house, even if it's joint tenants. They'll generally get spouse's interest in the house would be considered, would be taken into account, even outside the context of family law. So it, it's likely to be the case that it would be $5 million would go to the, to the creditors. But the problem with this is that your loan doesn't, you can actually do an undivided part title where, the, where you've got a $5 million loan against a $5 million part interest in a house, but it, uh, they're extremely rare. And most people, you know, it's a, it's a conveyancing issue. But what you actually need is the $10 million loan against a $10 million property such that 
$5 million that the bankrupt owns is fully covered by their $5 million half of the loan. Because otherwise the creditor uh, or whatever, the, the the bankruptcy trustee might argue that that loan is actually against the other half and yes. the uh, your $5 million is, is exposed. That leads to the next question you already touched on, and that is, of course, if the house is $10 million now, it might be $20 million in, I don't know, in God knows uh, how many years. And so... I guess from what you just said, there's actually a clause where you can say, yes, the loan is 10 million now, but the uh, trust is actually entitled to further parts of the capital gain. Hence, you might be able to then actually insure the 20 million that it is worth in X number of years. Let's say the trust funded half the property. It may then agree with the borrower that it gets it doesn't get interest, but it gets half the capital appreciation. Yeah, and if the trust funds the full property, because that's what you said we should do. If the house yeah. is ten million, the yeah. trust should fund the ten million to make sure that yeah. the, the share that is exposed is hundred percent covered. So that would then mean the trust gets hundred percent of the capital gain, correct? You could do that. Yeah, it it would be it would make a little bit. I think it would be more commercial if there was at least some to the owner, but. If you had applied my logic, it, yeah, 100% of the funding comes from the trust, 100% of the upside should go to the trust. Yeah. Just bear in mind that that will also give rise to, even though you might be CGT exempt at the house owner level, um, if that payment is made, it may have CGT consequences for the trust. So there'll be trade-offs between asset protection and, and capital gains tax on that primary residence if that loan is invoked to to recoup that equity upside. That's a very good point because for the trust, it's not a main residence, hence the main right. residence exemption doesn't apply. Right. Hence the trust would have to pay CGT uh, 100% on, the, uh, on yeah. the capital gain. Or potentially even income depending on how it was structured. But yeah, so there's no free lunch in any of this stuff. That, I can imagine that would be a major deterrent for people. Yeah, yep. I assume the spouses would be the directors of the corporate trustee of this, I call it as a protection trust, correct? Yes, it's it's usually the non-risk spouse would be, that's how we would set it up. Yeah, so. Okay, so then the risk spouse would have nothing to do with the corporate trustee mm -hmm. and with the trust and the non-risk spouse would be running the show. Yep, yep. Does it matter if the bank holds a first mortgage over the house? I no. guess you can always put up a second mortgage, correct? Yeah, and that, that tends to be what happens. Most banks will require some sort of consent to a second mortgage. Get that consent. I think it's a good idea if they do because it just is more evidence of the whole thing being bona fides. Some people just, you know, will say, oh, you just put a caveat on or you whatever. I, I don't agree with any of that. We would, when we do it, it would be you would take a proper registered second mortgage and then the bank will also want a deed of priority, which basically means that the bank can get its enforcement fees and all of those sort of things if they have ever have to uh, enforce their debt. So there is more expense from a documentation perspective, but yeah, you'd be silly not to properly register as a second mortgage with proper consent. A quick question off the topic, and that's the title. Is the title nowadays still a piece <laughs> of paper? Because I think a lot of people have no idea where that piece of paper actually is. Is it still a piece of paper or you don't have to worry about the paper anymore because it's all electronic? Once again, I'm probably a little bit removed from the action on that one, but my understanding is that it's all electronic now. Certainly in South Australia, New South Wales, which is where we primarily get into that sort of stuff, my understanding is there is no, you can get a duplicate or you know a copy of the title on a bit of A4 paper that your conveyancer will print out, but there's no, there's no title as such. It's an electronic 
title system. I think it's the same in Queensland. I'm pretty sure that we do conveyancing all around Australia here. And every now and then we get some vellum titles, you know, the old big ones with all the stamps on the back and everything come in. And then we can pass those to the client. They often sometimes frame them if it's a farm or something like that. But my understanding is that all states have abolished you know, the concept of a physical title. And certainly if somebody stole your printout of your title, they couldn't then deal. In fact, it's quite interesting because the the protection for property interests generally, I think, has, has gone up quite a lot because this concept of the physical title and all that sort of stuff and paying banks to hold them, it's all gone away. And there's there's significantly more identification requirements at the front end to be able to deal in property, whether to sell property or to buy property. It can become quite frustrating. But I think it's a good thing because, you know, we've certainly heard of or come across instances where been fraud on properties that I'm just, I, I just don't know how that would happen now, quite frankly, unless you were maybe a genius computer hacker. But the system is, has completely radically changed. So if you haven't dealt with a property in, you know, 10 or 15 years, you will find it very different. You'll have to go into the conveyancer. You've got to show them all this identification or you've got to get a guy to come around to your house and they'll, you know, you pay them a fee and it's, it's very complicated. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. So that means if you bought a house many years ago and you handed this piece of paper that had title written on it to the bank, mm-hmm. you don't need to worry about where that piece of paper is now. No, no. Okay, good. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> My gut feeling is the main turnoff point is really this capital gains tax because think- that can cost you a lot of money. That can cost you 25% of the capital gain if you then claim the 50% CGT discount and then you basically pay... 47% of you know marginal tax rate, it means you basically pay 25% of the capital gain in tax. Protecting that equity value there at the time you enter into the arrangement, I think is reasonably straightforward and there's no real downside. But if you, any additional element you introduce into the arrangement to try and ratchet up the protection over time is going to, there's going to be a trade-off. So one of the things you could do is Take a, do another equity strip down the road to sort of you know, capture any of that value that's gone up since that date. And I think the problem with that is that you will then have an equity strip that's you know, well into the risk, <laughs> the risk zone. So that's going to be more likely to be off, to, to upset by a bankruptcy trustee. Or if you put in interest, then that's going to be accessible. If you put in like an equity type participation arrangement, that could be either accessible or capital gain. So at, there's that trade-off that's quite difficult to protect their growth in equity over time. But certainly protecting the initial starting equity prior to embarking on the the risky behavior is less fraught with those issues. So protecting the value you have now is already tricky, but protecting future value growth is even harder. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've summed it up, which is to say that yeah, protecting the value that you've got when you first enter into the arrangement is tricky, but protecting the value that's created after that time is even even harder. Good. Perfect. <laughs> so I just use your words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Now, Andrew, one last question, which I won't put in unless you agree on it, et cetera, but it probably is not so relevant. But can you give me a rough idea of how much it costs to set up this equity strip? Are we talking $1,000? Are we talking $10,000? How expensive is it to, to set this up? Because I, I guess, you know, you need to set up a company then you need a trust deed and then you need all these gifting contracts and you need to register the mortgage. And yeah, that. I mean, I, I would say... Now, apologies, I had to take the price out, but I still find it very helpful what Andrew is saying in the following. Which would include some... So we won't do it unless we also give an advice as to its strengths and weaknesses so that we don't have people come back to us in 10 years' time and say, 
he told us this was going to be fantastic and there's no downside. So we'll generally do a strategy and then depending on the type of asset, if it's property asset, you've got to do mortgages and loans. Um, if it's shares, you've got to do a charge over the shares and a PPSR registration. You know, it's a lot of work. I've seen firms quote, you know, eighty, hundred thousand dollars. They look at the value of the asset that's being protected and they say, you know, small percentage of that, and then that's what they charge the client. You know, my view is what's the what's the work involved, including the strategy element. I would say for most run of the mill it's Sorry, took out the price again. Process if it's a group and there's lots of different assets and whatever it may be, you know, more than that, but that you should be able to document it and, and advise the client appropriately at that sort of a mark of the sort. Other advisors would probably think that's too cheap, but anyway. Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide. So this was our three-part mini-series about asset protection. We started in episode 396 with silos where you move different parts of your business into different entities, into different companies, so that if a creditor comes from one section of your business, it can't attack the assets of the other parts of the business. That's what we covered in 396. And then in 397, we covered the five layers of asset protection, which I already discussed in the intro. And then now in this episode, we have looked closer at the Asset Protection Trust, aka Equity Strip. So that was asset protection. Over the next two or three episodes, we will look at foreign trusts. We will look at New Zealand trusts, but also foreign trusts in general. That's the plan for next week in episode 399. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Hey.